All right, good morning, Four Oaks. We don't know each other. I'm Pastor Paul, one of the members of the pastoral team here. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles at long last to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5. Um, last week, if you weren't here, I did sort of a state of the church message where on behalf of the pastors and elders, I sort of forecasted um, what 2022, Lord willing, is going to look like for Four Oaks, where do we feel like God is, is calling us some of our trajectories and goals and priorities. And let me just encourage you, if you were not here last week, just to go um, to the hub, fouroakscalarin.com, and would love for you to, to, feel, to familiarize yourself with with that message and just sort of kind of get up to speed on all things Four Oaks as we enter um, this next ministry season. I talk about the theology conference that we have coming up in February, um, men's and women's events and retreats, uh, the Reformation trip info lunch that's after this uh, service today. There's just all sorts of things going on. But today, we, like, as I said before, we're finally back in the book of Romans. It's been about eight to ten weeks and we've been in this book now for four or five, six months, a series we're calling Rags to Righteous. And as we sort of get back up to speed in the book of Romans, because it has been a while, let me just, uh, as a reminder, re- refer you to a couple of resources that I encourage you to use in your study of the book of Romans. One, stop by the resource center um, out by the fireplace. And you'll know it's the fireplace because there is an actual fire going there this morning. And we have commentaries, books, Bible studies, Um, things that you can scan the code, order from Amazon, that'll just help you in your personal study of the book of Romans. Also, starting tomorrow, we're going to be rebooting our pastoral devotionals. Those happen Monday through Friday. We stream those live from the church website and Facebook and YouTube. We take 10 to 15 minutes um, every weekday morning to unpack a portion of the message from the week before. As you know, Romans is a super rich book, deep book, theological book. There's just not time to, unless, particularly there's not time if you want to beat the Baptist Alliance. There's just not time to, to download everything in one sermon. And so we take these pastoral devotional times to, to do some of that, to ask some questions and to probe a little bit deeper. Now, as we get into the text this morning, for those of you who know me at all know that one of my guilty pleasures is that I love true crime documentaries. In fact, the more murder, the better it is, right? Now, I, I freely admit as your pastor, it's not the most edifying thing for my soul, so I have to do it in small doses. But the plus side is that I am up to speed on all the latest scientific developments that investigators use to solve crimes, right? And one of the more recent developments is that investigators will go back through um, evidence that's 25, 50, 75, sometimes 100 years old, evidence that's been kept on file or in collection boxes, and they will go and apply today's technology and solve crimes that were committed, um, cold cases that were committed many, many years ago. Now, we've seen this particularly as it relates, right, to DNA. So investigators can go back, they can upload all the DNA profiles that they have access to. So whether it's genealogy, Uh, 101, Ancestry.com, some of you have done some of these sites, and they can take that DNA profile that was collected 25, 50 years ago, and they can send it through the system, and they can identify distant cousins. They can identify third and fourth generation relatives. They can find second cousins once removed, and of course, I'm from Tennessee, so all those things are the same thing, right? It's very easy to do genealogical research there, but through this process of investigation, they can kind of find the needle in the haystack. They can identify the perp, so to speak. Now, it is kind of creepy when you think about 
what technology can do and what sort of technology um, they'll be using 25 years from now to solve crimes committed today, I have five words for you. High resolution mobile satellite imagery. Look it up. That's all I got to say. Now you say, Pastor Paul, why are we talking about DNA and ancestry and genealogical records and profiles? Well, because in a way, that's sort of what our text is about. Paul is going to talk to us not so much about our physical genealogical heritage, but much more importantly, our spiritual genealogical heritage. You see, what we're going to find in Romans 5 today is that everyone in the history of planet Earth, everyone in this room right now, everyone who's ever lived, is going to be a member of one of two and two only ancestral spiritual lines. And knowing which one you're a part of, knowing how you got to be a part of the one that you are, and knowing how, if you don't like the one that you're a part of, to be a part of the other, all of those are matters of crucial, critical, eternal importance. And that's where Paul is going to take us this morning. And so if you can, um, I'm going to invite you to stand as we read from Romans chapter 5. We're going to begin at verse 12 and read down through the end of the chapter, verse 21, one of the more complex and, shall we say, hardest texts in all of Scripture, certainly in in Romans. Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free grace is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're asking for your help. We're asking that your Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would help me in this process, that I would only say what is true and right and reflective of your word. Lord, it's, it's a hard passage in a lot of ways. But Lord, we know it's good. You've given it to us as your people. All scripture is profitable, breathed out by God. And so, Lord, we ask now for your help. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may take your seats. 
We're going to talk about spiritual lineage, spiritual lines. And there's, there's three kind of sections, three parts of this spiritual lineage we want to look at. First of all, we're going to look at spiritual lines conferred. Secondly, we're going to look at spiritual lines compared. And lastly, spiritual lines um, contrasted. So let's look at spiritual lines conferred first. Look at verse 12. Um, it says, therefore, you've heard preachers and seminary profs say this for, for eons and eons. When you see a therefore, you have to ask what? What is it therefore? It's, it's kind of cute, but, but you get what we're saying. Well, Paul, in a, in a lot of ways, if you want to sum up Romans 1 through 4, um, has basically said this. All mankind is hopelessly lost. All mankind is under the just wrath and judgment of God, lost, alienated from him. Yet despite that, Christ, that God has sent his son, Christ Jesus, to be a substitutionary atonement, to, to, to die in our place, and that we can receive this free gift of eternal life by repenting and placing our faith in him. That's the first four chapters. And some of you might be thinking, well, if it was as simple as that, why is it taking so long to get here, Right. But, that, but that's it in essence. But now what Paul wants to do in Romans 5 is explain to us exactly how this happens. How is it that you and I come today to find ourselves in sin? How is it today that we come to find ourselves saved through Christ? And this idea of finding out how? How can we be made righteous in Christ? How does this exactly happen? We, we might have a question about that. See, Paul's wanting us to get a, a close-up look at that process. How exactly does sin work? How exactly does salvation work? And now we might ask, but, but Pastor Paul, isn't it just enough to know just, just the basic gospel? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Isn't it, not, isn't it just enough to know that I'm lost, that sin, that, I'm, that I'm, I've fallen into to sin through my own choices, and that Jesus saves by his death? Isn't, isn't that enough to know? And on one hand, let me say this, yes, it is. It, yes, it is true. There is enough gospel in what I just said that I am sinful, but Jesus saves me. There is enough gospel in that phrase to save a world of sinners, no doubt. Yet, you don't have to know that just because you know how something works or don't, don't know how something works, that you can't benefit from it, okay? So let me, let me give you an example. So, so ancient stargazers would look at the movements of the stars, the seasons, the constellations, the planets, and they didn't know a lot compared to what we know today, right? They didn't know a lot but they knew enough to know that the world was an amazing place, that it was ordered and structured and predictable and based upon laws and such and such. However, in subsequent generations, as we've discovered things like Newtonian physics and Einstein's theory of relativity and the Hubble te uh, telescope and spacecraft, we've learned a lot better exactly how the universe works, right? Even though we know, still know very little. And so as the depth and body of our knowledge of the universe has increased, then our appreciation and amazement for the way the universe is has increased right along with it. We haven't become less impressed, in other words, the more we've known. The more we've learned, the more impressed we become. 
Now, I think that's the same reality for us spiritually as believers. You see, Paul doesn't want us to be content with superficial or just sort of surface level understanding of theology or salvation, right, or truth. Paul wants us to go deep. Paul wants us to understand. See, as our hearts and minds come to grips in a more significant personal way with how all of this stuff works, then our hearts and minds and emotions will expand with the greatness of God. See, as the circumference of God's power and grace grows, so also will our affections and worship and obedience to God grow as well. In Scripture, this passage takes us to the deepest levels. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who took him 11 years and 15 sets of commentaries to preach to the book of Romans, you've heard me say this before, he, he even says at the beginning of this passage, this is maybe the most significant passage in all of Romans. Now, of course, Lloyd-Jones says that before every sermon in the book of Romans. I just want to tell you that. But he actually, I think, might be right. And let's see what we're getting at here. Paul lays out two primary categories of spiritual existence. Okay, and in here they are. He says, there are those who are in the line of Adam. And then secondly, there are those who are in the line of Christ. And he says, death and sin came into the world through Adam and his choices. But life came into the world through Jesus and his choice. And Paul confers titles, okay, to these two lines, okay? Look at verse 15. The first man, Adam, calls it the line of Adam. Remember, you're familiar with Adam, right? If you went to Sunday school and had the felt board Sunday school lessons, you're you're familiar with this. Adam was placed in the garden. He was given a partner, a wife. He was, he was told to worship and work and glorify and make a family and go out and be obedient and honor God. And in doing so, God makes it clear to him, he is setting a course. He is setting a trajectory for the rest of mankind that will follow him. And he tells Adam, if you obey, you're going to live. But if you disobey, you're going to die and be banished from the garden. Right Now, some have speculated, um, well, what would have happened, Pastor Paul, if Adam had been completely obedient, right? Um, would, would, would this sort of period of testing have ended? What would have happened? And, and it sounds to me like a great question for the Monday morning pastoral devotional. There's your last little promo, okay? For this discussion, let me say, I think that's immaterial and speculative. But what's more important to know here is that Adam did indeed fail. And as verse, tell, verse 12 tells us, sin entered the world through one man. So think about Adam as a champion, Adam as a representative, Adam who was raised up as the standard barrier for all of mankind, and he is carrying the torch, and then he fails. But then Jesus Christ as also a standard barrier, a second standard barrier, okay? That's what it means, look at verse 14, when it says that Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. 
In other words, where Adam failed, God was going to call up a second Adam. And listen to what Paul says about him in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. He says, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So where one Adam failed and failed miserably, he was just a type, a shadow, a prelude, a pointer to this second Adam who was going to come and take the torch that Adam had miserably dropped and was going to carry it forward in an attempt to do what the first Adam could not. And so those are our two men. Those are the spiritual lines that God has conferred upon all mankind. And and let me just say the most pressing question any of us can ever ask or grapple with is, which one of these ancestral lines do I belong to? Which, 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 one of these, which one of these defines my spiritual genealogical heritage? There's no more important question that you can ask than that. And so let's, let's, let's compare and contrast these two champions, so to speak. So let's, talk, let's talk about their comparisons first, spiritual lines compared. It's our second point. Because understand something, and, and let me just say this point is going to be super duper hard for us individual Westerners who value freedom and autonomy and individual choice and taking responsibility for our own actions, this particular concept and piece of theology is going to be a tough one. Now, every culture has its own stumbling blocks. Every culture has its own idols. Every culture finds certain scriptures much more digestible than other scriptures, okay? This one can be, for many of us, a hard one. And so what Paul is saying here first is that Adam was a man, but he wasn't just any man. He was T-H-E, the man, okay? He was the man, meaning he was placed in the garden as a representative for all of us. And that whatever he did was going to set the trajectory for the rest of us and for the rest of human history. In other words, he was acting on our behalf. And theologians have called this Adam as our federal head. Now, that word federal, undoubtedly you are familiar with it in terms of the federal government. Why, what does it mean when it says we have a federal government? Because we don't live in a pure democracy, right? We, we don't cast individual ballots, all of us, for different bills and things that come across the plate for our representatives. Rather, we elect representatives to go and act on our behalf and to vote in our stead. And the congressional record won't say if our Florida House representative voted for X bill, okay, it won't say, but these particular constituents all had a problem with that. And these particular constituents all thought that was a good idea. It won't say that. It'll just, the record will just say, such and such representative voted on our behalf. This is how he or she voted, whether all of us agreed with it or liked it or not. Now, Adam, as our federal head, was our federal representative, which means this, and this is the hard one. When he sinned, what does Paul say? Sin came into the world through one man. And Paul says from sin came death. And death came because 
all sinned as a consequence. And so from that point forward, all of Adam's descendants, physical and otherwise, are born into sin. Look at verse 12. It says, death spread to all men. The very first super spreader event in the garden. There it is, right? Spread like a disease to all men. So we have to ask, okay, why do we sin? Now, please understand something. We do sin by choice, 100%. We do sin by imitation. In other words, we, we look at what other people do and we imitate what they do. So we, we do sin by choice. We do sin by a, a, imitation. But that's not the fundament, fundamental reason we sin. We sin because we are born into sin. We are born in Adam. We are born into his line. Just like you did not have anything to do with who your parents were, and your kids didn't have anything to do with who their parents were, they were it was a simple reality biologically. Well, the same thing spiritually is true, Paul is telling us here. By virtue of what Adam did on our behalf, not only do we sin by nature, not only do we sin by choice, not only do we sin by imitation, but we sin because we are born into sin. It is a fundamental, foundational part of our identity. Now, even if you have a theological problem with that, let's all be honest for a second. Anecdotally, is it not the most obvious thing, right? You don't, parents, you know this, you don't have to teach your children to do bad stuff. You do have to teach them to do good stuff. You can raise a child in a hermetically sealed room free from all sinful interactions, and I promise you they will find some sort of mischief to get into, right? We sin naturally. We sin freely. We are not tabula rosas. What's a tabula rosa? Um, it's, a, it's a psychology term. You learn it in Psychology 101. It literally means blank slate. And the idea is that everyone comes out as a blank slate, and they're only contaminated, infected to do bad things because of the environment that they are in, or because their parents, or what have you. Now, although that's a part of sin, okay, um, it doesn't address the issue of fundamental identity. I always thought it was humorous. Typically, the people writing those psychology books, none of them had kids. I'm just saying, right? Okay. The, the point is that Adam's failures are far-reaching. And Paul uses a little analogy here in verses 12 through 14 to sort of impress this upon us. In other words, I don't believe all that stuff, Pastor Paul. I mean, I, I think we can be as good as we want to be. I, 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 think, I think it's, I mean, if we just have the right system and the right, and the right rules and the right regulations or the right kind of government or the right kind of laws or the right kind of this or the right kind of that. I think this thing could work a lot better. And Paul wants to tell us not true. Now look in verses 12 through 14. He says there was no law between Adam and Moses. And what he means is this, that Adam was given one command and he disobeyed it. But from that time forward, all the way up to Moses, there was no explicit law given by God. That only happened at Mount Sinai through Moses as God's mediator. So, so there was no direct commandment for people to obey or disobey. 
But Paul says, but however, we know there was sin. We, we, we know that there was separation from God, and how do we know this? Paul says, we, the reason we know this is that men and women still died. That, that, see, if this whole idea of original sin just sort of like grates on your fairness nerve, right? Like, I, uh, it's just hard for me, Pastor Paul, to wrap my mind around it. The reality is, whether we want to embrace that or not, anecdotally, we all know no one escapes death. Unless the Lord Jesus returns, and we pray he does, and he comes quickly, we, that we are going to die. You can deny God and spiritual realities. You can have a theological debate. But at the end of the day, you can't deny the, 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 the plain truth. Death comes for every one of us, regardless of what we say we believe. Why? Because Adam messed it up. Adam was our federal head. And understand something. Even, again, if you're having a hard time wrapping your mind around this, I want to point out to you that this is actually the way God created all human relationships. It's, where, it's how he created all human structures with this idea of what we want to call representative leadership or federal re- leadership. This applies not just in salvation, but it's everywhere. In fact, it's woven into the fabric of the universe. So for seven or eight Saturdays in the fall... Many of you will trek down to Doak Campbell Stadium, and you will wear your colors. And what determines whether you leave the, the, the game that day happy or frustrated, or happy or sad, or happy or angry? What does that depend upon? It depends not on what you do, right? You're putting all your hope into 18, 19, and 20-year-olds. God bless our souls who do that, right? God bless us. But it's true, it's, it's federal representative theology leadership in action. Guys, it's true in business. You're a boss, you're an owner, you're a CEO, you're a manager. What you do impacts the people who are below you, oftentimes whether they like it or not. Guys, we see this principle at work in the home. Right where, where as fathers, as your leadership and as, you, as you're guiding, leading, directing, what you do, good or ill, directly impacts your families. Moms, as what you do directly impacts your kids. Teachers, what you do directly impacts your students. I could go on and on and on. Let me just say, I'm very cognizant of the fact that what I do as a pastor has a great bearing on us as a church family. It's a sobering thing. It's a humbling thing. That's why James says, not many of you should aspire to be teachers because you're going to be judged more strictly. The principle of representative leadership is everywhere. It's baked into our very souls. And there's two application points I want to take from this, okay, before we leave this point. Number one Where in your life has God placed you into what we want to call federal leadership, representative leadership? 
Is it at home? Is it at work? Is it at school? Is it in small group or is it in church? And I pray today that God would give all of us a greater awareness of just how much others depend upon us. Give us a greater, greater awareness of, of just how much others need our holiness. Others need our faithfulness. Guys, this text destroys the idea of what we would call private sin. Well, Pastor, well, that's just a private sin. It doesn't really hurt anybody but me. Untrue. Untrue. And so, so pray for you. I pray for you. Pray for me that God would bring in a sobering way the reality of how he has placed us in a sphere that directly impacts other people. So that's application point number one. Application point number two, and this is a whole different variety. I just want to toss this in. And this might be a good one for you to think about. Maybe you're new to the Christian faith or you're a little more what we would call skeptical or you're just trying to get your feet on the ground with all this. Guys, there's been a lot of discussion, particularly in the last 100 years, about Genesis 1 through 3, actually Genesis 1 through 11. And how are we to interpret Genesis 1 through 11? What, what's history and what's metaphoric and what's imagery and what's narrative? And, and it, the hard thing is that oftentimes Genesis is an intermingling of all of those things, right? It's history, narrative, poetry all at the same time. And so this has given, given rise to much debate about, well, what, sh- what in generation, Genesis 1 through 3 should we take literally? And what is it that we just want to sort of interpret metaphorically, spiritually? I think that the historicity of the Bible maintains that we not only take the story of Adam and Eve seriously, but we also need to take it very literally. And one of the reasons for this, first of all, you realize Paul affirms it as literal. Paul means for us to read this in a very literal, direct sort of way. Tim Keller, as he always does, has a great quote about this. Here's what Keller says. He says, Paul most definitely wanted to teach us that Adam and Eve were real historical figures. When you refuse to take a biblical author literally, when he clearly wants you to do so, you have moved away from the traditional understanding of the biblical authority. If Adam doesn't exist, Paul's whole argument that both sin and grace work covenantally falls apart. You can't say that Paul was a man of his time, but we can accept his basic teaching about Adam. If you don't believe what he says about Adam, you are denying the core of Paul's teaching. In fact, I would go as far as to say you have set the conditions for undermining the very gospel itself. And and I want to show you under this last point how. Let's talk about spiritual lines contrasted. And here, Paul is going to turn the whole argument upside down. And he's going to say, in essence, what was the worst of worst news when it comes to the first Adam is the best of best news when it comes to the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 15. He says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Here's sort of the the Cliff Notes version of what Paul is saying here. 
He's saying that, fur, that, that, that representative principle that was at work in Adam, the fact that Adam acted on your behalf and you fell into sin because of, of what one person did on your behalf, he says that's the same principle by which the gospel works. You see, Jesus obeyed, died, and rose again on your behalf, but with radically different results. Look at all the contrast Paul makes here. See, first of all, he says, Adam's choices brought death. Jesus's, what? Bring life. Judgment followed the first Adam, but he says justification follows the second Adam. See, justification is made possible just as much as the sin of Adam was, was, was imputed to us because of his actions on our behalf, the actions of Jesus on our behalf are the means by which his righteousness is imputed to us, done on our behalf. I want you to think about this for a second. Have you ever thought, why, why did Jesus need to come and live for 30 years before dying? Could he just not have shown up the day of Calvary, taken his place on that cross, shed his blood as a sacrifice for sin, why couldn't, why, why is that not the gospel? I mean, why is that only part of the gospel, Pastor Paul? And, I, and, and this is why. Jesus had to do what Adam could not do. Jesus had to come as our representative and live a perfect life in our place. He had to be born. He had to grow up. He had to work. He had to be faithful. Guys, he, as the second Adam, he had to live in perfect, faithful obedience to the law. He had to be baptized. He had to run the gauntlet in a way that the first Adam had utterly failed to do. As our representative Folks, Jesus met all the righteous requirements of the law. He was perfectly obeying, obedient. And he did something that we could not do for ourselves. See, and here I think we get a glimpse into the mysterious purposes of God. Pastor Paul, why did God set things up this way? I think there is, there is a sense here in which Paul is giving us a glimpse into the deepest part of the heart of God. You see, Paul is wanting us to be crystal clear. Just like there wasn't anything that we could do to, to affect what Adam did on our behalf, there's nothing, not one thing that we can do to contribute to our own salvation. Because it is all by grace. It is all by God's mercy. Jesus doesn't do 99% and he leaves the last little 1% of lifting to us. Jesus has done it all. He has been perfectly obedient. He has been our representative. He did what the first Adam utterly failed to do. And God wants it to make it crystal clear to us, this is not about you. This is about me. This is about my grace. This is about me doing something for you that you could not do for yourself. And I want to draw your attention to this little phrase that pops up several times in here, and it's the phrase, much more. See, look at verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, 
death reigned through that man, what does it say? Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. He uses this phrase several times, and I think what he's wanting us to understand, folks, is that what is true for sin and death, that it came into the world through one man, how much more is this going to be the reality for the grace of God? You see, some of us just can't wrap our minds around the fact that God could really love us, forgive us, and wipe our slates clean. Surely that thing that I did yesterday or 10 years ago, or surely this besetting sin in my life, or, or surely my lack of faithfulness or my lack of obedience in a particular area, sure, surely it can't be as simple as that. And Paul's wanting to make it crystal clear is that where sin increased, listen, grace abounded, not in equal measure, grace abounded all the more. I find it fascinating that when Paul refers to the gospel, he never calls it the gospel of the escape from God's judgment or the gospel of no punishment. Now, what does Paul invariably call it time after time after time? He calls it the gospel of what? The gospel of grace. And the gospel of grace, the grace of God, is most clearly on display in the person, work, and death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Yesterday, we celebrated the life of Kent Hamilton. Kent has been one of our longstanding elders here at Four Oaks. He went to be with the Lord And if you want to ask, why did Kent die? We can point right to Romans 5, right? We all die. Sin and Kent inherited the curse of sin and death passed on to him by Adam, just as all of us have inherited the curse of sin and death. But the reason yesterday that we were not only mourning, but that we were also celebrating the life of Kent Hamilton is that the gospel of grace so much more abounds through the perfect obedience of Christ. You see, church, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The second Adam did for Kent what the first Adam could not do. Do you know that that is true for you? That the first Adam what he failed to do, Jesus has done for you utterly and completely through his perfect righteousness, obedience on your behalf, and that this is to be received by faith as the gift of the generosity of the God of God. The good the gospel was good news for Kent. Is the gospel good news for you? Which of these spiritual ancestral lines do you lay claim to? And, here, and, here's, and here's the glory of the gospel. If you are of the line of Adam, no, there, there's not an invisible barrier okay, that, that prevents you from coming to be a child of God. What it takes is a trust, a belief, a repentance, a faith to say, I know I deserve the sin of Adam because I'm a sinner but I freely receive the righteousness of Christ. That can be yours. I pray that it is.